welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David Cunnington and Dr. Moira Jung. So welcome to episode number two of Sleep Talk, our podcast on all things sleep, hosted by sleephub.com.au. And again, I'm here with Dr. Moira Jung. Welcome, Moira. Hello. Hello, everyone. Happy New Year. And this episode, we're going to be talking about narcolepsy, and we've got a couple of uh, interviews with uh, Jackie Tomlins, uh, someone who actually has narcolepsy, and Dr. Simon Frankel, a sleep physician who, like myself, works with people with narcolepsy, and they'll be our feature interviews for this podcast episode. So what's been in the news this month? So what's interesting about sleep, Moira, that's caught your eye? Well, I think the biggest thing really is the... Um or the, the stress, I guess, post-Christmas, the, the, the letdown, the build-up, the build-up, you know, the end-of-year stuff, and then some people are lucky enough to have a break, but then they're bang straight back into, into work. Um, and that stress post-Christmas can sometimes have a bit of a, uh, a, bit of a hangover, mm-hmm. if, you, if you like, a bit of a New Year's Eve hangover still coming into the, into the couple of weeks later. And people are, have been making New Year's health resolutions and probably by this time struggling to keep to them. And that increases stress and frustration, can impact on sleep. So I think that's really important to remind people really this is um, making sleep a priority in the new year. All of us should be thinking about that and, and looking at ways of trying to make that happen because yeah. it's not easy. Yeah, it's not easy. And I've actually written a blog post about trying to balance sleep and exercise because sometimes I see people who you know they make their new, re- new Year's resolution and it's all about I'm going to exercise and get mm. up and go to the gym and set that alarm an hour earlier. And then they're but too they're tired. Actually, yeah, <laughs> but they're actually missing out on sleep. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, and so trying to keep those things in balance because you actually got to do both. Exercise is great for health, but sleep's also important for health. Absolutely. So, so in setting those resolutions about exercise, just include sleep as part of that yeah. plan as well. And not to mention the nutrition as well. I mean, that's something we I'd love to do an entire podcast on that, like sort of food and sleep. Because it strikes me more and more that the people, especially if people are not eating well, they just feel more and more tired. It's a bit like maybe the, the food coma or, you know, carb coma or sugar yeah. coma people talk about. Um, and I'd love to explore that further probably in, in another podcast. Yeah, sounds great. So what else is, um, what's been happening in social media? What's been happening in Sleep Hub of late? So we've got a couple of new things on Sleep Hub. So we've got some product reviews of some sleep apnea products that we filmed at the Australasian Sleep Association conference uh, that we've put up on Sleep Hub over the last few weeks. And as you know, we're doing this podcast series. And so episode one's now up on the website and the series is available via iTunes. Uh, I also wrote another post uh, late in last year, just before New Year, about this concept of fear. You know, there's a lot of fear, a lot of things to be fearful that we hear about in the news, mm-hmm. and that can impact on sleep. So mm, I've written absolutely. a little bit about that. Um, so look out for that on Sleep Hub. So thanks for helping us out, Simon, and helping us understand a bit more about narcolepsy. So what actually is narcolepsy? So narcolepsy is a condition characterised by excessive levels of sleepiness, Uh, that we now know is due to a deficiency of a neurotransmitter in the brain called hypocretin, which is also known as orexin. And what are some of the common symptoms that people with narcolepsy get? The most common symptom, and in fact the first symptom that that people often develop with narcolepsy, is excessive levels of sleepiness during the daytime, um, despite adequate sleep at night. Uh, what often happens um, in, in the years after the development of this uh, initial symptom is that people start accumulating other symptoms uh, that we term sleep boundary phenomena. And give us an example of some of those. What, how do people describe them? 
Yeah, so sleep boundary phenomena are generally sort of blended states of both wakefulness and sleep. So you get features of each um, occurring together. Uh, often uh, patients describe to a sleep paralysis where they wake in the middle of the night and are unable to move for a couple of minutes but have awareness of, uh, of the fact that this is occurring. Um, uh, cataplexy is another very common symptom that we see in narcolepsy uh, where often triggered by strong emotions people um, during periods of wakefulness will experience the paralysis that occurs in sleep and will fall over for example. Yeah and it's those ancillary symptoms that I often find helpful in trying to make a diagnosis of narcolepsy because the the sleepiness you know lots of people are sleepy and lots of people say they're tired and often that's a bit non-specific. Are there any little clues for you if you're sort of listening to how someone describes sleepiness that makes you think, yeah, maybe this is narcolepsy? Yeah, it's often, uh, you're exactly right. It's, uh, um, uh, it's, it's a very um, common symptom that occurs in a number of different conditions uh, uh, and it is often confused with other states of perhaps tiredness or even fatigue. And so I think some very careful questioning about um, how that particular symptom affects them is very important. Uh, but I also do go um, searching for these other ancillary features, mm-hmm. um, uh, these, these sleep boundary phenomena, and in particular asking specific questions um, around those areas. Uh, with regards to the, the, the excessive sleepiness, I, I often look for a, sort of a long history of often sleepiness that is quite intrusive, mm-hmm. uh, where people are finding themselves falling asleep in, in situations where it's either not acceptable um, to do so um, or where they really don't want to be doing that. So, for example, I often ask people if they you know, used to fall asleep in school or at university uh-huh. more than their classmates did. And then in the introduction, you talked a bit about um, hypercretin or orexin deficiency. So just can you run through a bit for us the biology of narcolepsy and our understanding of that? Yeah, and this is, this is I think, for me, a very exciting area in that uh, it's, it's relatively new. Um, hypercretin as a chemical was was only um, discovered in the 1990s and it was a few years after that that, um, that people started realising that it was an extremely important transmitter in providing a, a strong signal for wakefulness. And what we know about people with narcolepsy is that um, likely being born with a genetic tendency to develop narcolepsy, um, there is some trigger um, that causes essentially autoimmune destruction of the very small number of cells within the brain that produce this chemical. Mm-hmm. And it's the absence of this chemical that causes the, the symptoms of, um, of both excessive sleepiness and due to its role in terms of modulating very sharp transitions between wake and sleep, the sleep boundary phenomena that we often see as ancillary features. Yeah, and that's for narcolepsy with cataplexy, or sometimes that's called type 1 narcolepsy. But what about for narcolepsy without cataplexy, or sometimes called type 2 narcolepsy? Yeah, that's that's a, a slightly more difficult area in that we know that there are um, many similarities between the two conditions uh, in terms of the types of symptoms that people describe and um, the appearance on their their sleep studies. Uh, The hypocretin levels in people with type 2 narcolepsy um, are often slightly higher than those in in type 1, Mm -hmm. um, but still lower than those in the normal population. and to complicate things further, some people who do in fact uh, have type 2 di- uh, uh, narcolepsy will ultimately go on to develop type 1 uh, narcolepsy as their hypocretin levels drop to below a critical level. Yeah, and it, you're right, it can be really hard to differentiate and things can evolve over time. 
And we don't have hypercretin assays or the ability to test hypercretin levels routinely as part of clinical practice. So what are some of the other tests that are used in trying to make a diagnosis of narcolepsy? Yeah, and that's, uh, that's, that's a tricky area, and it'll, it'll be nice if, um, if ultimately that's something that is commercially available. A lot of the clinical trials do look at that, but as clinicians we don't have the luxury of, of that type of testing. Uh, so the, the diagnosis often comes down to a combination of, um, of, uh, of taking a very thorough history um, from the patient, um, but ultimately having a, a, a sleep study, which is usually uh, a combination of an overnight sleep study, which serves the purpose of uh, confirming that there are no other um, co-associated sleep disorders that could be contributing to the symptoms that the patient's describing, um, and then a daytime sleep study, which is known as the multiple sleep latency test. And that's the cornerstone for the diagnosis of narcolepsy. And once you suspect someone's got narcolepsy, what are the general principles of treatment and how do you go about establishing someone on treatment? So treatment uh, is is often multimodal. Um, we need to be ensuring that um, that patients uh, um, uh, with this condition are ensuring that they've got um, adequate opportunity for sleep. Uh, planned naps are often very helpful in some people where you know, a 10 or 15 minute power nap um, can be quite refreshing. Uh, but for many patients that's inadequate and we're, we're often looking at medication to, uh, to control symptoms. And the medication that we use, broadly speaking, looks at uh, controlling both the excessive sleepiness that, that people with narcolepsy describe uh, and also the, the ancillary features, the sleep boundary phenomena. And for the most part, that, that often requires um, multiple medications to control these different features. And if you're thinking about a medication to help people stay awake, what are the examples of medications that we'd commonly use in Australia? The most common ones used in Australia are what we term um, stimulant medications. These um, by varying mechanisms all work on the uh, neurotransmitters within the brain that are important in um, providing um, stimulation and wakefulness. Mm -hmm. uh, the common ones that we use um, classically amphetamine-based medications um, such as dexamphetamine and methylphenidate have been used and uh, a number of people are still taking those medications. Uh, but for the past 10 years or so, a medication by the name of modafinil has been um, much more commonly used and for most patients that's what they would be started on first line. Uh, it's, it's got benefits over the amphetamine-based medications in terms of it having a, a smoother effect um, without a lot of the adverse effects that many people on the amphetamine-based medications describe. Yeah, and I'd agree with that approach. And Though when it comes to clinical practice, nothing's as straightforward as that. And I often find people respond better to one and not so well to the other and so end up trying a number of medications and, and cycling through them. Yeah, and that's, I think that's one of, the, uh, one of the downfalls in where we're at at the moment in that we understand the biology of what's happening um, in narcolepsy uh, with hypocretin deficiency, but we don't have any medications at the moment that specifically tar target hypocretin. So we're looking at various workarounds that, um, you know, really on an individual basis um, have uh, different degrees of effectiveness. So sometimes it is uh, sequential trials of a number of different medications until we find the right fit. And what about for cataplexy? What are some examples of the medications used for cataplexy? So cataplexy uh, is, is thought to 
be due to um, alterations in um, noradrenaline levels in the brain. And for, for many years now, people have been using various types of antidepressant medications um, to control cataplexy uh, because these medications generally have some effect on noradrenaline levels. As antidepressant medications have evolved over recent decades, um, we now have agents that are much more effective at targeting um, that particular chemical and so often many of us are now using uh, drugs that, that work uh, more specifically at that area. Um, so drugs commonly used would be things like Effexor, um, which a lot of us would use first line uh, and find very effective for cataplexy, often at doses that are much lower than those used for uh, treatment of depression. And so I've written a blog post about some of the medications for narcolepsy that's on sleephub.com.au and I'll put a link in the show notes. So just to stretch you a little bit further, Simon, and sort of tease you out a bit, so as a physician working in this area and working with people with narcolepsy, what are some of the things you struggle with and you find hard? Uh, look, I think there are, there are a number of things that are difficult in this condition. Often you're diagnosing people in their late teens or early 20s with a chronic medical condition. So uh, I know you've discussed with some of our colleagues previously about um, you know, the really significant um, psychological impacts of diagnosing um, someone with a condition like this. And so I think it's really important not to underrate that as, uh, as a clinical consideration. Um, as a clinician, uh, I think uh, the imperfect nature of uh, the pharmacological treatment that's available to us at the moment is, is difficult and sometimes trying to find that, that right balance between um, positive effect and side effect is sometimes difficult. Uh, uh, both with the wake promoting medication, the stimulant medication, and with the, the, um, the medication that we're using to treat cataplexy. So those are often um, probably the most difficult things that I find in, in treating the condition. Yeah, and I'd agree. And my, one of the things I struggle with too is that the treatments are partially effective, um, which means that we're always trying to get that bit more or push a bit harder. And yeah, looking at the psychosocial aspects can often help move people forward um, rather than just focusing on the medication or expecting the medication to do all of the work. Yeah, and I think uh, you're exactly right. I mean, it, it, a lot of it's to do about um, managing expectations uh, um, because I think if, if we're honest with people about, you know, what we've got in the cupboard that, that we could potentially use, um, you know, if you do run into problems with, with finding... Um, that right balance between positive and negative effects of drugs, um, you know, it's something that you can deal with as part of the clinical relationship. Thanks very much for your insight, Simon. That's really helpful. Pleasure. So that's Dr Simon Frenkel from Lung and Sleep Victoria, and Simon's a sleep physician. You'll notice in that interview I didn't draw Simon out about Xyrem or sodium oxabate as a treatment for narcolepsy. The reason for doing that is using Xyrem is actually quite complex complex in terms of selecting the right patient, getting the dosing right, seeing how people respond. And there's also a lot of complexities, particularly in Australia at the moment, for accessing the drug and looking at funding for the drug. So much so that it's almost a topic in its own right. And I think it is a topic we'll come back to as a future podcast episode, or maybe as a standalone uh, recording. There are some other resources on Xyrem on sleephub.com.au, uh, and I'll put the links to those in the show notes. So now I've got Dr. Moira Jung and Jackie Tomlins, someone with narcolepsy, and Jackie's been kind enough to come and talk to us about her experiences in being diagnosed with narcolepsy and some of her experience with treatment. So welcome, Jackie. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Jackie, for coming in. 
So just talk us through, you know, when you suspected something was not right, what was the sort of pathway and what did you do and, and what happened? Well, I was actually seeing a sleep specialist for restless leg syndrome and sleep apnea. So I had had some issues with sleep for some time, uh, for quite a long time, for a number of years. But uh, a couple of years ago, I started to notice a range of other symptoms, and mostly that was around um, the fact that I felt very sleepy at different times um, during the day, uh, especially in the evenings. And I had a um, theatre subscription with my partner, and we'd go to the theatre, and uh, invariably I would fall asleep because as soon as I sat down in a quiet, dark spot, then I would nod off. Um, but also, just during the day, I would find um, very difficult to concentrate. Uh, if I read a book, I would fall asleep. Um, and so I found that it was just starting to unravel and that none of the medication I was taking or none of the things that I was doing was, was having an impact on that. So I uh, checked in with my uh, sleep specialist and had a test for narcolepsy. And um, I think when I first got the diagnosis, uh, A, I wasn't surprised. Um, I think that my father had narcolepsy, even though it was undiagnosed and untreated and many years ago. So I, um, I wasn't surprised, but I also wasn't too worried uh, at first. I imagined that the condition would be treated with medication, that that wouldn't be a very big deal, and that um, after a short period of time and on some good medication that all would return to normal. But that was not the case. And it sounds like your pathway to diagnosis was actually a bit shorter than many people that we see who aren't already seeing a sleep physician, for example. So Moira, you know, you and I hear stories all the time of people that have had symptoms over a long period yeah, of time. Yeah, I'd say 10, 15 years often, do you think? So it tends to stem back to um, usually at least 10 years prior. People look back and think their symptoms, if they look back, were about 10 years Yes, yeah, a paper a number of years ago out of the US showing the average time from symptom onset to diagnosis was 12 years. Mm. We're not doing a great job. We, do, we yeah. need to do a better job yeah. as healthcare professionals to, to shorten that time. But I wonder what it is, and there must be, because I mean, you don't want to say that we're all incompetent or our colleagues are incompetent. There's something that's quite tricky about it. It's com it's, there's, there's a complexity there. What do you think? Yeah, I, I agree. And, and maybe the tiredness is part of it. And you know, in a modern society, you know, if someone says they're tired, everyone else says, yeah, I'm tired too. Yeah. I'm more tired, I'm tired. than you. You know, Just it's a badge of honour rather yeah. than a disorder per se. Right. Yeah. I'm more interested, Jackie, whether you had heard of narcolepsy. Had well, I, I had. Um, and as I say, I, I'm not quite sure where or how or at what point I, I did hear about it, but I was aware that my father used to fall asleep at random times. He had multiple minor car accidents when I was growing up. So um, when it was diagnosed with me, that was the first thing I thought of, that my dad had it. Mm. And I also think um, when I started to think back 
to events and activities and stuff that had happened in my life, I think that I probably developed it in adolescence and that I had been managing it and um, had worked out strategies over the years for handling it. And it wasn't until much later that it seemed to kick in more severely and have a much bigger impact. But I suspect it's always been there for me too. And certainly in people I see when we come to treatment, I see a complete range of responses. So I do see some people, I must say they're probably the exception, where first drug we use to help people stay awake fits nicely, they feel like they're functioning well. For the majority of people I see, you know, we end up working through a range of different medications and it can take a while to find a combination that people feel works or something that people feel is, yeah, I'm better, at least mm. I can cope a little, a little better now. So you just talk us through your experience with starting on treatment and how that went. It, it's a very long and quite difficult journey. It certainly was in my case. And as I say, I expected that there would be medication that would fix it quite quickly and that was not the case. So for me, how it um, panned out was that we started on one type of medication and because you're building up uh, taking the medication in, in small doses and you're looking for the positive outcomes of the medication plus also the negative side effects, that can take some time. So for each different medication I tried, it, it could be a number of weeks until we actually worked out whether it was working or whether it wasn't. And in my case, I had um, some negative sort of mental health uh, side effects um, with, with certain medications, which meant that they weren't going to be working, it wasn't going to be a long-term solution, so I would go on to something else. And I suppose in the, in the early days, it, was, it really was a bit of a roller coaster. So you would have this expectation that this medication was going to work, and then it didn't, and then the disappointment of that, and then uh, you'd start a, a second medication or a third medication, and you know, quite frankly, there aren't many um, options. So the further down that track you get, the more anxious you get, or certainly I did, because I'm thinking, well, if this one doesn't work, you know, what's left? There's not much. And I think the other thing with the medication is that even when it works, it's not a fix. And you still have the significant impact of narcolepsy on you every day and I still have to manage that every day even though I have some medication that I know certainly helps um, but it hasn't fixed the problem and it doesn't and I think the other issue is is the side effects too because some of the some of the medications might work for you but the uh, side effects are, are very bad um, yeah, just talk us through some of those side well, effects. Give us some examples. Yeah, some. I mean, they range from the kind of fairly minor and irritating to to the massively uh, significant. And I suppose on the on the lesser end, um, things like I, I feel like I'm permanently dehydrated, and even when I drink all the time and drink vast amounts of water. Um, my my mouth feels dry all the time. So just um, even speaking aloud or when it gets to the end of the day, reading a story to my kids at bedtime, things like that. 
Um, so that's one of them. On certain drugs, your um, the the effect of the drug is to uh, it does something to your saliva glands, so you don't actually produce saliva. So you feel like you're sucking in on cardboard the, all day, and it's actually intolerable. Um, so that was some of the ones I had. Then there are other things that where your mental health is is affected. So increased anxiety. Um, I, I remember a couple of occasions where I was in a social situation where I was uh, with a, a group of people and I went into a room and I just thought I do not want to go into that main room where all those people are. Um, I, I just uh, felt uh, extremely anxious and kind of unable to cope with those sort of normal social interactions and that's not what I'm like uh, at all. Um, and I suppose in, in the most extreme form, um, I did experience, uh, I suppose I'd, you know, I'd describe it as a despair um, at, at, at one point when I just thought, um, if every day is going to be like this for the rest of my life, then I can't, I can't handle that. And I think the problem is when you're on some of the medication, you don't know whether that's the effect of the medication or whether it's just the effect of knowing that you've got a really awful illness. Yeah. Um, and that's quite challenging, and that's why you need to be in very close communication with um, whoever is prescribing your drugs, yeah. your, your sleep specialist, because it can be that that, that was really tough. Yeah. And I can find that tough too. As the prescriber, I can find it tough to work out, should we be putting the dose of medication up because the, it's, you know, ongoing tiredness that's creating performance anxiety or is it the drug creating anxiety and is putting the drug up going to make things worse is it going to make it better and sometimes we just have to go with it and see what happens yeah and it's certainly you know i get that it's not an exact science and there's lots of trial and error and for me it was probably um at least 12 months before we even came close to getting something that was not having very negative side effects and some positive ones. So you're talking months, not weeks, and and can even be longer than that. And I'll often find too, people will cycle through medications. And so, you know, as you've said, in terms of wake promoting medications to help people stay awake, you know, we've got three main medications that we'll use. And it's often I'll try the first one and someone will feed back and go, nah, don't like that. We'll rotate to the second one then to the third one, and they'll actually come back to the first one and go, geez, that's the least worst of the bunch, or that's the feeling that I think sits more comfortably with me. So it's certainly not a case of first drug we try, done, or, you know, all sorted. And it is often a case of rotating through a few, seeing how they work for people, and people then getting a judge, you know what, in this situation that drug suits me okay, but in a different set of circumstances this other drug mm. suits me okay and can often change a bit as well. And there's a real, um, a really clear role for psychology or psychological support or counselling or whatever, <coughs> some kind of psychological support for people with narcolepsy in in this particular topic around medication, yeah. like uh, coping with the side effects, uh, coping with the disappointment too, with the the highs and lows of um, hoping something's going to work and then it might not. Mm -hmm. um, and I wonder about the role of psychology in general. I mean, I, I'm thinking. I mean, of course, I'm biased. I think that. Pretty much we should have it part of our standard package if someone as they get the diagnosis of narcolepsy while we're in a we're in a multidisciplinary team here like part of it should be okay you know here's a psychologist come and have a session with 
him or her. A bit of a support, a bit of an introduction, screening for other things, anxiety, depression, and just offering that. I think that would have been great, Jackie, if mm. I'd seen you a bit earlier. Do you, do you agree? Before I was a basket case. <laughs> yeah. uh, absolutely, yeah, because I think it was uh, seven or eight months, I think, until I was able to get that kind of support. And by that time, I was, uh, I was a bit of a mess, to be honest. And some some understanding of, um, of what I was going through reflected back um, by someone who understood it would have been very helpful. As I say, because you're in it um, and because you're not really sure of the effect of the medication, then it feels like, it felt to me like my judgment was all over the place um, and that I was not necessarily able to make accurate um, decisions about uh, what I was what I was on or, or, or the dosage or the impact and so having somebody else in a, uh, in a kind of informed way be able to do that I think is really really important yeah. and everyone's experience is different and so sometimes I get a sense I, I do see people who have the same reaction as you were describing Jackie when they get the diagnosis okay great that's all sorted and so whilst I really agree with you, Moira, great role for psychology support, sometimes people at that point, if I said, right, as a package, you've got to go now to see the psychologist, yeah. mm. they'd be going, why? This is all mm. going to get sorted real quick. I'm going to be fixed. As an introduction. And, it's yeah. just, and then as things, if things go a bit awry, as the wheels might fall off, to say it's easier to step back in with that person. You've already had that introduction, you know what's offered. Yeah, yeah. Except, I mean, food for thought, we haven't even discussed this at any level, I'm just I'm just speaking off the top of my head here. Because um, I, I just see the value. Yeah, I agree, not everyone with narcolepsy would necessarily want it or necessarily um, need it. But I think there's a, a there's a pretty clear role I think for the for psycho mm. psychological support. Yeah, absolutely, I agree with you, and I, we're going to touch on that in a future podcast where we'll tease out a bit more some of the psychosocial impact uh, around narcolepsy. And I think one of the other points that um, comes out is you know your experience, Jackie's certainly you know followed one particular course. And really reinforces for me that when I'm when we're managing narcolepsy, it's certainly not a one size fits all type of approach. You know, we really have to be very open to trialling a whole range of different things, and you know, often not settling on the first combination and working through things till we can um, find a reasonable combination. And I think that is very evident from looking at the posts that people put up on the. Facebook page, the support group Facebook page, that uh, for the however many hundreds of people that are on that page, uh, so there are that many different experiences. Um, it really is uh, incredibly varied, not just the medication, and I think there are a whole range of uh, uh, other issues that have an impact and that might be the age of the person, whether it's a child, whether it's someone at university, uh, whether it's uh, parents, if someone's trying to get pregnant, pregnant if they have a particularly um, stressful job. Um, there's all those factors come into play and they all have an impact on how that narcolepsy will be experienced. Thanks very much for your generosity, Jackie, in sharing your experiences with us. 
If people want more information on narcolepsy, there's a page on narcolepsy at sleephub.com.au. The Stanford Centre for Narcolepsy also has good information on narcolepsy. And Narcolepsy Support Australia have a closed Facebook group that's available for people with narcolepsy in their families to discuss and get peer support about narcolepsy. So in this section, we talk about a clinical tip or a pearl for the month. So Moira, what, what's your tip for this month? Because we've been talking about narcolepsy, I think it's good to... My clinical pearl or tip focuses on narcolepsy and to encourage people or health practitioners or even, in fact, people with narcolepsy or families of people with narcolepsy to, to not be surprised to actually have the need or for insomnia treatment as part of the narcolepsy because we know that narcolepsy people have excessive daytime sleepiness and difficulty falling asleep. They're falling asleep a lot at inappropriate times, like during the day, but it's not unusual for people to have difficulty sleeping at night. Um, sometimes that can be uh, a range of issues, um, the med- you know, taking their stimulant medication and, and maybe too late in the day. Mm-hmm. But just, just the, the whole sort of heat and stress around, around this condition and, and adjusting to the, to the illness. There's a lot of stress and disruption. So it can be sort of counterintuitive because you don't expect to be using CBTI or cognitive behavioural therapy for insomnia type techniques. But it's a really good, it's important thing I think you'd know as a medical person too that perhaps you probably add in a hypnotic sometimes for people who are having difficulty staying awake. It's sort of counterintuitive but yeah. really important. Yeah, you're right. Really nice point, Moira. And you're right. A lot of people I see with narcolepsy also struggle with insomnia. Mm. And sometimes it's the condition itself. Sometimes it's some of the stress or anxiety of coping mm. with the condition. And sometimes it's the medications. There's a paper recently on um, children with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and their medications contributing to poor sleep. Yeah. And I think that the same holds true for people with narcolepsy. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, yeah, we've got to keep that in mind. And another Im- important clinical pearl really is to include the family in our assessment and treatment and diagnosis, really, with people with narcolepsy. It, it can't really be stated enough how important family members, caregivers, colleagues, friends, um, to include them as much as possible. And to make sure they're informed and educated about the condition because it's sure it's a person with narcolepsy having the condition, but it certainly does affect everyone around them. Yeah, that's a really nice point as well. And there's, there's often a lot of misperceptions about narcolepsy out there in the community and family can have those same misperceptions. So the mm. more they can actually understand it and understand mm. how it impacts on people, the better they can support people with narcolepsy within their family. Yeah, for sure. So, so what's your pick of the month this month, Moira? Well, I've come across a book. I got it for my birthday and only got around to reading it um, this week. It's actually uh, a book called Dreamland by David K. Randall, who I'd never heard of before, but apparently is a well-known journalist who writes for Reuters and has written for other notable um, publications um, based in New York. And it has been a New York Times bestseller. Um, and I just thought it was fantastic. It's, it's called Dreamland Adventures in the Strange Science of Sleep. And it's written like a, a novel in a sense. It's a, it's, it's a combination of really good scientific research covering a range of sleep disorders and sleep conditions. But also just sort of talking about the, the sociology. It's almost a sort of sociological piece about sleep. And like I'm looking from the back here. It says um, the bed is a state of controversy as well should parents sleep with their infant child is is a marriage doomed to fail if partners sleep in separate beds etc it's been really highly regarded wall street journal says it's marvelous 
Yeah, or Junger said it's marvellous. I, I loved it too. <laughs> I must admit, I, I read the book a couple of years ago and yeah. it was my fave. You know, yeah. I, I really enjoyed that book and you know, a bit of a sleep geek, so I'm going to love anything that's written about sleep. But yeah, I thought it was easy to read. It was really well researched and yeah, a great book about sleep if you're interested in sleep. Yeah, but you do wonder, I mean, whether other people besides us two, you know, we do sleep geeks that are interested in all things sleep, whether... With the, I mean, obviously it's been a bestseller. So it, it, it's, I wonder, I'd love to talk to David K. Randall one day about what he had in mind for the particular audience. All right, we'll put that on our wish list to get David on <laughs> as an interview in, uh, in the future. What about you? Have you? What's your pick of the month? So for me, it was a research paper that was published uh, back in November in JAMA Psychiatry. And it was looking at comparing light therapy with an antidepressant, in this case, fluoxetine, as a treatment for depression mm -hmm. and showed that light therapy was a little bit better as a treatment than an antidepressant as a treatment for depression. Fantastic. And that actually the combination of the light treatment plus the antidepressant did better again than either as a single agent. And we've known for a long time that light therapy is a treatment for SADS, winter blues, mm. you know, mm. seasonal affective disorder. But this paper was about people with non-seasonal depression or you know, what's yeah. called major depressive yeah. disorder. And really an important paper showing that light has an important role to play as an antidepressant treatment. Yeah, because I, I saw that paper too and I can't remember if there was a particular clinical pearl about the timing because I think that the timing and the dosage is always such a, a critical thing with light for us to get right. Do you know whether, like, how much emphasis was around the actual? Yeah, not not as much. Not, yeah. I know we get a bit particular about yeah. that, and it's got to be at the right point in the circadian phase and yeah. the right timing. They weren't that careful, oh, and it just seems that light worked. first still... thing in the morning. Yeah, um, they did use a standardised light source, but the timing of the light in relationship to the circadian phase really they didn't pay the sort of attention to we often get very obsessed about. So it doesn't seem to be, doesn't have to be as complex, I think, as what we often make it out to be. So do they check their circadian phase? It's not really, not at all. No, no, no so marker of that. No, so there wasn't really markers of the mm. circadian phase. We'd just have the light and, you know, light first thing in the morning. Yeah. Fantastic. So what should people be looking out for around sleep over the next few months, Moira? Well, there's probably a range of things out there, but the thing that's um, on the forefront of my mind is the... Sleep 2016 meeting in this year's in Denver, Colorado, June 11 to 15, and I'm certainly looking forward to going to that. I believe you're going as well. Yes, absolutely. Excellent. So the people who aren't able to get there, I'm sure we'll have lots of information, certainly on Sleep Hub. And yeah, and we will be able to feature some things on the mm, podcast of things we find yeah, interesting at excellent. the meeting. What about the theme for next month's podcast? What's coming up? So next month we're going to cover cognitive behavioural therapy for insomnia, which is really a great psychologically based or non-drug based treatment for insomnia. And we've got a couple of great guest interviews with Dr Tony Fernando, a psychiatrist from University of Auckland, and Dr Curtis Gray, a psychiatrist from Brisbane, and they'll help give their perspective as well about managing insomnia using these strategies. Great, look forward to it. So that's all for this episode of Sleep Talk. Thanks for listening, and for more information on sleep, check out sleephub.com.au. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.